The Better Call Saul Season 3 premiere is over, but we're just getting started here on The Better Call Saul post-show recap. And now, here are the two guys who never pull the varnish off the walnut. I'm Rob Sestrino. Very excited to be back with Antonio Mazzaro. Antonio, how are you? Rob, you got to give it the double roll, left and right. You know what you're doing, right? <laughs> Yes, yes, Antonio. Very excited to get back into the return of Better Call Saul, the season three premiere of Mabel. So thrilled. Mabel was my favorite character in this episode. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Are you familiar with the adventures of Mabel? I'm not. I'm not sure that that exists. As I am given to understand, Mabel is Vince Gilligan's mom's name. Yeah, I think it is a real book. It may be a real book, but that's also his mother's name. And I think that's if we're looking into the episode title, Rob, like we did last season, if we're reading the tea leaves, I'm not sure what kind of clues there are with Mabel. I guess we'll find out later. Was this a callback to the late, great WWE superstar King Mabel? Uh, Viscera Big Vis, a.k.a. King Mabel. Let's hope so. Maybe everyone on the episode could get those like blue eyes. This would be great. We're really getting niche right away with this podcast, Rob. All right. Here we are ready to talk about uh, the season three premiere. You and I have been podcasting about Better Call Saul from the get-go. Here we are now, our 21st Better Call Saul episode. I'm thrilled. Screw all these latecomers, Rob. These people that are just starting their podcast. We've been Jimmy here since come the ladies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, we've, we did that. We did the, the last season of Breaking Bad. We, uh, we know our stuff a little bit about the show and uh, we've enjoyed talking about it. It's a slow burn. So you could probably binge all our past podcasts in a couple of days. Okay. So just to put that out there. Also, Antonio, you've been very busy. I know that you have not only uh, been binging the podcast, also you have rewatched all of Better Call Saul to prepare for this. I have. And I rewatched watched all of Breaking Bad, and I am still a lawyer, not currently disbarred, so I'm in good shape, hopefully. Okay, yes, and I want to set that up as well for any of our new listeners, of course, uh, that you are very familiar with the law as a lawyer, and I have no qualifications other than owning a microphone and podcasting equipment and watching all of these shows so that we balance each other out. Well, you're familiar with recording things, Rob, which is a yes. big part of the show. So we're right on yes. the same page here. Yeah, this I is had great. the same tape recorder as Chuck. I have many batteries at my house. Your car so, has a gas cap. We're in good shape. <laughs> yeah, we're in very good shape to talk about all of it. So we will be back with you guys for recaps of every episode and gas caps of every episode <laughs> here for Better Call Saul season three. You want to make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Go to postshowrecaps.com slash BCS iTunes postshowrecaps.com slash BCS iTunes and you can subscribe there and we also truly appreciate your honest feedback and star ratings here at the start of a new season. It helps more and more people find the podcast uh, and it makes us very, very happy. And speaking of happy, uh, that is our condition after the return of Better Call Saul. Yes, this is just a, it was a little bit of a taste that we had the beginning scene with Gene like we've had the first two seasons. A dab of icing. A little dab of icing and a mousse-bouche, if you will. We had just a, a little one bite here to tempt us for the rest of this meal of season three. I think we set a lot of interesting things up. It's going to be it's going to be fun to talk about them here, and it's going to be fun to track these threads going forward because a lot of wheels are in motion, and as the Air Force or military man said to Jimmy in this episode, the wheels are going to turn, and I think that that's going to be bad for probably just about everybody. Yeah, I think so. Let me just also do one other piece of housekeeping that we are recording this on Monday night after the episode has aired. For the most part, this season, uh, we'll be recording this the day after they air. So you get a chance to get your questions in. And since we are not able to do that tonight, 
Antonio and I are going to come back later on this week to answer some of your feedback questions, which you can send in anytime. BCS at Post Show Recaps. BCS at PostShowRecaps.com. Or you could leave us a voicemail on our feedback line. Go to PostShowRecaps.com slash voicemail. All right, Antonio. We... In our last podcast, talking about this in our season two wrap up, we said, will season three start off with a gene scene? We both agreed that it would. And there we were back at Cinnabon. So thrilling just to see the Cinnabon again in black and white. It's my favorite part. But this is honestly, it's very interesting to me because I feel like the first two, for example, when we didn't see, we didn't really see Gene talking. We didn't see, we saw him at work. We saw him get trapped in the garbage room. We didn't really see him speaking. This is the first time we've seen that, that speaking, that explosion that we see. And what happens? Is he sensitive to electricity, Rob? He's out. He's on the floor. (laughs) I don't think this boat well for Gene, and I'm going to make a bold prediction here. I don't think this is the last we'll see of Gene this season. Well, it seems like to have a Gene scene only in a season premiere, it seems like that the Gene story is going to have to go about 13 seasons before we can get anywhere. Right. And I don't know that you can have this scene that ends with him passing out and falling to the floor and wait until next season to follow up on what is a huge loose end for a guy who's a fugitive or theoretically a fugitive. At least we don't know exactly what level he's wanted, but he's on the run and he's hiding. And now if he's on the ground and they call paramedics, is he going to be in an ambulance on the way to the hospital when he wakes up? That's not a place he's going to want to be. So I don't think you can wait a full season to pay off on that. And I think that we'll probably see another Gene scene before the season is over. Antonio, were you surprised that Gene talked to the police? I was very surprised with the way that all played out. Uh, It was a classic half and half, half measures Gene, where he points to the police where the shoplifting kid is. But then he leaps to his feet and says, get a lawyer. Don't say anything. Get a lawyer. He's very excited and it just comes bursting out of him. So even if he's trying to play it straight and be the normal guy and on the level and talking to the cops, he can't help but be Jimmy McGill or Saul Goodman when he jumps up and says, get a lawyer. I, he's got he's a man of two halves in that moment. And I think you see both of them in that scene. Were you surprised that he pointed for the police at all? I felt like he was intimidated. Yeah, I thought that he wasn't going to even speak to the police or that he was going to run away or he was just going to say nothing to them. And I really was uh, shocked that he did that. And then it was almost like some sort of like bout of PTSD that he ends up just blurting out, don't talk to them, get a lawyer. Right. I just I think that he couldn't keep who he was under wraps. And I think just to not say anything to if you if the the cop is bearing down on him, asking him, what did you see? What do you come on, guy? What do you know? If he's not giving him anything, I'm not sure that that's the way to fade from the cop's attention. I think he had to give him something to turn their attention somewhere else. And I think that's ultimately he didn't say anything. He just pointed. But I think at the end of the day, he's still a lawyer. He's still Saul Goodman. He's still Jimmy McGill. So I felt bad about it. He's also still a little bit of a criminal and honor among thieves and all that. He felt like he had to give the kids some advice there. I think that that I think that encapsulated perfectly where Gene is at in his life. He cannot draw the attention of the police. He cannot be on anyone's radar. And yet he also cannot hold back from wanting to be Saul Goodman. And I think it's a very unfortunate circumstance to find yourself in if you're Gene or Jimmy, but it's the circumstance that he finds himself in. And maybe it's too much. Maybe that's why he falls to the ground when he goes back to work. I'm not 100% sure on where that comes from, but I just don't think that that bodes well for him. 
Yeah. Do you think that there's any sort of parallel between the guy who was the pickpocket or, you know, petty criminal who is trying to hide from the police and then Jimmy is the one giving him up? And then is there something to like his subconscious is also trying at the same time to give himself up? Entirely possible that he can't he is so afraid of this thing. It's it's one of those things where he knows the secret or he knows this thing and he can't keep himself from letting it bubble out from time to time. I think there's something to that for sure. Is there anything in particular about that event that you think caused him to have that sort of a meltdown? I'm not sure. We we know from Breaking Bad or from Better Call Saul, we've seen a flashback to young Jimmy when he's working in his father's store and he knows these words of the street, the street lingo, and he knows that his dad is being put on. He's streetwise even when he's a little bit younger than the shoplifter we see in this scene. So I do think there's a little bit of sympathy for that kid. I think it's one of those there but for the grace of God go I kind of things where he looks at that person and sees a little bit of himself and knows what that's like to be on the run and to hide. And he in the moment when they're when they're really forcing down, forcing him to say something, he can't help but point. But he feels bad about it and explodes out because I do think he can align himself with that person a little bit. I think that's always why he's been a good criminal lawyer, as Jesse Pinkman puts it in Breaking Bad, because he he understands the mindset of a lot of the people that he represents because he is slipping Jimmy at his core. That's who he is. And so I think when he sees something like this, it does trigger those impulses in him for sure. Did you notice that he had a Kansas City Royals backpack? I did. He's trying to blend in, Rob. He's trying to blend in. He's he's in. I think he's what is he? In? He's in Nebraska, so we know that there's a there's a lot of regional interest there, uh, and he's just trying to blend in. He's just trying to yeah. play low. He's reading the auto the biography of David Niven, a famous actor. I'm not sure what the significance of that is. The moon's a balloon, but that's what he's chosen for his lunchtime reading. He's eating bugles, Rob. Very boring lunch. <laughs> hey, speak for yourself. <laughs> I know. I, I don't mean to hate on bugles. I'm going to get a lot of. Uh, I'm negative PR from the Bugles lobby here. But going back to the Royals thing, I feel like that we were talking about last season that we thought there was a tie-in to the Kansas City Royals and Kim. Right. I just thought that that was interesting that, again, we had the Kansas City Royals come up. Yeah, and again, it's a regional thing, but you you point out that Kim, he's somewhere near, and we talked about this last season, about future possibilities, if Kim is still alive in the context of the Breaking Bad timeline. Is something going to happen where she's gone back to her hometown, which is a small border town there, and the Royals are, she's wearing her Royal sweatshirt, and blue was her color always. Royal blue or blue itself was the Kim color. And so there is a connection to Kim, and maybe that's just a little a little nod to that connection but i also think he's just going native there and he is just trying to fit in uh, in terms of what he's doing so it's one of those things that serves many masters and i think better call Saul does that a lot and does a really good job of it okay anything else with gene or can we talk about the dilemmas for present day jimmy I'm just most concerned about what happens with Gene after he faints because he's he's the kind got of the guy icing on his face. He's got icing on his face. He topped himself off. So I'm I'm a little concerned ultimately with where that goes. He's the kind of guy that can't go to a hospital and be fingerprinted because it's not all going to match up. And where do we go from there at that point? And is that something that with that sort of action brings us into the larger story of Breaking Bad again? And are we going to get back to those criminal elements as a result of him? 
him sort of being pinged on the radar. So I'm a little concerned about that. But that's it. That's it for the Gene story, for sure, at least for now. I do think it'll be interesting to see if we see him again this season. All right. Well... Let's check in with Jimmy. And really, this episode picks up right where we left off at the end of season two with everything going on in the tape recorder. And Jimmy basically confesses to Chuck about how he altered the documents that made Chuck feel like that he was going crazy and have that meltdown that he had at the end of season two, which we are still unclear about how much of uh, his plan was was premeditated. We don't really know. Yeah. When he formed that plan, whether it was in the hospital or afterward or at what point or any of that. But we do know. I'm curious, Rob, how long into this episode did it take for you to put in your notes or say to yourself, F Chuck? (laughs) Uh, At the point, I think when he says, I don't think I'll ever forget what happened here today and you will pay. That's 100% when I wrote it down. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my, my point is, he's yeah, he says that, right? And then he continues to accept Jimmy's help. He's letting Jimmy help him take down the very things that he built to trick Jimmy. And that's just a total F Chuck moment in my mind. F Chuck. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Do you Scumbag. feel like that Jimmy was trying to manipulate Chuck in talking about their time uh, together as kids? I didn't feel that way. Did you? I don't know. Yeah, I didn't feel that way because I I think the story of Jimmy and Chuck from Jimmy's perspective at this point, and I think you see it really desperately in a later scene in this episode between Jimmy and Kim, where Jimmy is confiding in Kim and says, for 10 minutes, I forgot that he hated me and I had my brother, you know, I just that was so wonderful for me. And he's really just depressed in that scene. It's great work from Bob Odenkirk. I think all he seeks from Chuck is acceptance. And I think that scene is in there in part to show that these guys are brothers who do have a caring shared history. They've not always been at each other's throats. And there is a relationship there that is maintained. I did not see it as manipulative on Jimmy's part. I do think Chuck kind of saw it that way, obviously. As soon mm-hmm. as Jimmy starts talking about this book, Chuck is, is drawn in a little bit, but then he he corrects himself and is angry. And that's when he drops that line that made us both say F Chuck. So I think Chuck read it that way. But I think Jimmy's just kind of seeking acceptance from his brother. I want to just ask you big picture in terms of this episode with everything that we saw with Chuck and with Jimmy. Do you feel like it was unsatisfying to not get here in this first episode what Chuck plans to do with the tape? No, I don't, because I I don't mind seeing now a Chuck caper. One of the things I like about this show is I think there's a little bit of concentric circles or these swirls going on where Jimmy himself is breaking bad because we've seen him from the beginning of the show be a good person with a good heart who's a little bit is a little bit bent he's a little bit twisted he's doing things a little bit crooked but he's a genuinely good person he gives back the Kettleman money he's good to Kim almost everything very bad that he does in this series is done in part because of Kim and to her benefit and not in a very negative way so I think he's ultimately a very good person and we're seeing him sort of circling the drain of becoming a bad person. I think we're seeing the same thing with Mike in terms of Mike starting this series, trying to put things behind him, the half measures, the lengths he's going to and won't go to to take care of his his family. So I think we're seeing the story where he ends up 
where he does in Breaking Bad, which is a guy who's willing to pull the trigger very quickly. We're not seeing that yet. He's sort of circling that drain. And I like seeing this from Chuck. Chuck started on the moral high ground at the beginning of this series, even though there was something going on with him in this condition. And we've seen Jimmy say, come fight me. I want to drag you down into the mud. I want you to do what I do. And now we are seeing Chuck go full Jimmy. This is a Chuck. This is a Jimmy level thing that Chuck is doing. And I think in that case, we don't always see Jimmy's capers or Mike's capers pay off in the context of one episode. I'm thinking of Mike making the stop sticks with Kaylee, his granddaughter, and then not finding out right away exactly what was going on there. I think there's a better the better call Saul specializes in the slow burn, the storytelling, the slow burn, because if they do it too fast, they'll be in the Breaking Bad timeline before we know it. So mm-hmm. I think this is a classic example of a better call Saul slow burn. We see some but not all of what Chuck's doing. It's involved. Look, Rob, we'd be out of business if if we were coming in here this week and be like, well, Chuck played the tape for Howard and they went right to court and Jimmy got this bar. The season's over. I like it much better seeing Chuck flip his tools around and playing Ernesto with the batteries and knowing full well that he's got some bigger plan that we have to kind of tease at and figure out what's going on. I much prefer that kind of storytelling. And I think it fits in the context of this show. Oh, okay. Well, this is interesting. So you feel like that what happens with Ernesto, this was intentional that he set Ernesto up to hear what happened. That was not an accident. Oh, yeah. I felt that for sure. And I thought that when it happened, when it was all he was fumbling around and there was this complicated thing with Ernesto and the batteries and all of that. Uh, And I I might add that the similarity between uh, Chuck's scheme and Mike's scheme with draining batteries and switching them around is a lot of batteries tonight, right? A lot of batteries tonight, a lot of batteries tonight. Uh, And and it is something that (laughs) it's interesting because, like I said, very similar actions with the batteries. We're going to drain them out and replace them. And in the replacing them, sucker someone into a larger scheme. I think the key element of this for anyone who didn't catch it or who is going to rewatch this episode, when Ernie walks away from the scene after Chuck has told him, you can't say a word about this. You cannot tell anyone. Confidentiality, et cetera, et cetera. Chuck flips the tools. He, he flips a tool in his hand so confidently as though to say that worked exactly how I intended. It is not the action of a man who is freaking out because somebody heard something they weren't supposed to. I think the other shoe on this is when we have Chuck and Howard talking about the tape. Howard says, I don't know what you want to do with this tape. And Chuck says, I think I have an idea. And we don't see how that scene progresses. I think that next scene with Ernesto is what Chuck intended next. And I think that this is all part of a larger plan. I'm curious, Rob, if that's true, if Chuck has this plan to make Ernesto hear this tape and say, don't tell anyone about it. Does is Chuck's plan? Does he think Ernesto is going to go running back to Jimmy and tell him instantly? I don't know. Uh, I'm just a little bit still mind blown about this because I was going to say that I feel like this was frustrating to not get any movement on uh, tape gate here in this episode. I feel like that we had the whole year and change, you know, 14 months since we got or probably about a year from when the finale aired of when we saw this episode of wondering, okay, well, what can Chuck even do with the tape? And I just uh, felt like it was uh, very frustrating to have Chuck say to Howard, oh, wait, there is one thing we can do. And then we didn't get that. But if uh, the Ernesto here, if this is part one of Chuck's plan, I think this changes a lot of things. 
I do think that that's what it is. And my wild guess at this point, because I've, I've, I've thought about two opportunities or options there. Put yourself in Chuck's mind. What we saw from last season at the end with Chuck is Chuck very correctly sniffed out that Jimmy would have gone to the all-night copy shop and Jimmy would have done the forgery there and therefore someone there would remember him. Chuck sent Ernesto to the copy shop to verify this. Ernesto came back and told Chuck, yeah, somebody there did see him. In the interim, while that was happening, Jimmy went into the copy shop. He bribed Lance, the guy that was working there, the all-night stoner dude that was behind the counter and was very pliable with cash. And that led to Chuck blowing up, in part because Ernesto ultimately, at the hospital, says, I called him. Like, he didn't show up after you fell down. He didn't show up immediately because he was watching and waiting in the wings, which is what Chuck knew to be true and which was the truth. He showed up because I called him. Ernesto had his back. Once Jimmy admits that there was fraud and forgery, Chuck's a smart enough guy to know that, okay, then Ernesto lied to me. Ernesto is more loyal to Jimmy than he is to me. So Chuck knows that by playing this tape for Ernesto, it's going to get back to Jimmy. I think what Chuck is more interested in doing is getting Jimmy caught in the cover-up. The cover-up is always worse than the crime. And I think that if you can't, the, the scene with Chuck and Howard is very important because Howard is running down all of the problems with the tape. Well, look, it's already difficult because it was a secret request. Recording. Then you're going to have Jimmy come in and run all these experts in and claim that it's not his voice or that it was edited. And all those things are going to happen. We can't play it for Mesa Verde. It's the, that ship has sailed. So we're screwed there. So what can you do with this tape? And I do wonder if Chuck is going to use this tape to get Jimmy to cover it up, to destroy it, to do, to break into his house, to do something ultimately once he knows the tape is out there that he can then be caught doing and then punish Jimmy for. I think that's what Chuck's ultimate plan is. I do wonder as well if Chuck wants Kim to hear this tape but doesn't have the guts to play it for her himself and wants it to be out there in the universe that it exists uh, so Kim could be in trouble. I think that that could be part of it as well. Uh, all interesting theories. Do Are we convinced that Ernesto is not Gus Fring's kid yet? No, is that I'm not. Still are you? A, I mean... He really to bring Ernesto back of all people that he's like a recurring character on the show. And we know Gus Fring is going to be in the mix here. I mean, uh, how likely is that? I, I know that it's a theory that we talked about. I think it's fairly likely on some level. I There's some good stuff floating around Reddit. I texted you one of the pictures of how Gus Fring stands with his arms at his sides, with his chest puffed out a little bit, and Ernesto standing exactly the same way. We have Gus Fring say in Breaking Bad that he had kids, but we never actually saw any evidence of that. We have Gustavo. Is it too is obvious if Ernesto is Gus Fring's kid? He looks exactly like him. He looks exactly like him. Him, Ernesto Gustavo, there's a connection there. Uh, I don't know, man. If what if Ernesto is secretly a criminal? Like, what if he's part of Gustavo's criminal empire and he's just a, a plant? He's just gaining information for Gus for all of his various operations and. I, the, right now, the way the actor who plays Ernesto is playing the character is very innocent and uh, put upon. He's very frustrated. Last season, he, he very hilariously says, I miss the mailroom. Like, he's very sad about what's going on. And he's just in the middle of, of all this drama and really seems like an innocent bystander. I do like the idea that he might, he might be a not-so-innocent bystander in all this.
Antonio, I know you've rewatched all of this stuff. How in the loop is Ernesto on what Jimmy was doing at the copy store? Does he know the details like the 1641? Does that ring a bell for him? Does he know precisely what Jimmy's doing or he doesn't even have a idea what Jimmy was actually changing in the copy store? Yeah, I don't think it's 100% clear because I'm not sure ultimately what Chuck may have said to Ernesto. We know Ernesto shows up there. We know then he goes back and gets Chuck. And we know when Chuck is there, Ernesto's trying to calm him down. Then when everything hits the fan, when Ernesto tells Jimmy why he lied, why he said, I called him, he says, I like you. You should hear what your brother says about you. He says some horrible things about you. So I feel like he's being unfair. And that's ultimately why I did it. Why I why I lied, why I stood up for you. And it's not one of those things that it, it's 100 percent clear what Ernesto may know about the specific details of the crime. The impression that's given is Ernesto is sympathetic to Jimmy, considering all the things he's heard Chuck say about Jimmy and considering they were they were buds in the mailroom. They worked in the mailroom together at HHM before Jimmy ever became an attorney. So the mailroom days are the salad days, and they're friends from those times. And I think he has Jimmy's back a little bit. I'm not sure what he knows about the specific incident, though. So if we were just going to play this out, so Ernesto goes and tells Jimmy, hey, Chuck has this tape of you confessing. Then Jimmy's wheels start turning. How do I get the tape recorder from Chuck? And so we have some sort of Watergate type scenario where now Jimmy needs to break into Chuck's house and steal the tape recorder back. And then what? Does he call the police? I'm not sure. Right. Or does he videotape it? Does he does he have something? I mean, that requires electricity. Calling the police requires a phone. It's not clear what level of caper Chuck's playing at. I will say that it it is inconvenient for Jimmy, to say the least, that Chuck did change the locks at the end of last season. It used to be Jimmy had unfettered access to Chuck's house. He took care of Chuck. He brought Chuck everything. He did all these things for Chuck. When Chuck suspected that Jimmy might have rat-effed him, as Chuck put it, uh, or as Jimmy put it, then Chuck changed the locks. So Jimmy no longer has easy access to Chuck's house. He's really only allowed in there when Chuck allows him in there. And you can bet if Chuck is trying to bait Jimmy into breaking into his house and then getting caught... He's not going to allow Jimmy an opportunity to steal that tape while he's in the house in in a permissible way. So I'm not sure where this is all going to play out. The thing about Chuck that's really upsetting me or angering me, triggering me, I'm triggered by Chuck, Rob, Uh is that I know we don't ever want to be triggered by Chuck. This is no good. Uh, It's just that he's such a phony on so many levels. Uh, the, The fascinating thing to me is that when we see this first scene with Jimmy and Chuck, Jimmy storming out of the space blankets, it's a really wonderfully shot episode. And the first really great shot of the episode in the episode proper, the non-gene scenario, is Jimmy storms out of the space blankets and the camera is it follows his way into the empty space that he created. And we see Chuck pivoting away and he just starts taking the Faraday cage down, which to me is a blanket admission that he Space blanket was, admission. It's a space blanket admission. 
notion that he was playing this up that the oh i don't need this anymore i i freaked out a little bit but i really don't need this anymore help me take it down person who this was built to trap like this is ridiculous that chuck is right away pulling this stuff off the walls like his condition ebbs and flows and goes away as he sees fit and he's able to rig the batteries and play with the the tape recorder enough to get ernesto to come over and play with it if you believe that this was all part of his plan to get ernesto to hear it when he put the batteries in i I fully believe that it was but if you believe that then i just don't believe he's ultimately that sensitive to electricity i think that it comes up it's very convenient and he uses it to his advantage and he's probably sensitive but he's certainly not the level that he lets on and it seems like he always very conveniently is able to put it aside if he has to go into his garage to get the the tape recorder if he has to set the tape recorder up if he has to go into hhm and call kim out on the carpet or do something like that he's always able to put it aside when he needs to so that's very frustrating and i think that ultimately there's a lot of that going on here with chuck in this episode and i i don't even to the extent that i don't even know at this point how much to believe about what level he's truly even feeling sensitive to electricity at this point i do wonder how much of it is just him playing it up and getting people to wait on him and getting to do things the way he wants them and being the center of attention and all of that Well, I don't think it's a surprise that Chuck, when he wants to accomplish something, that he can get over his issues with the electromagnetism in all of these devices. Uh, We've seen him do that a number of times before. Right. The part about taking down the elements of the Faraday cage, that didn't bother me as much because I felt like that Jimmy in confessing was trying to say, Chuck, you don't have to do all this. You're not losing it. You know, you're you're still all there. Look, uh, it's not that you didn't make a mistake. OK. And then I felt like Chuck was saying, oh, OK, so I, I don't have to put all of this stuff up in my house. It's not as bad. So I, I didn't mind it as much as you. You did him taking everything down. I didn't think that he necessarily came off as phony because of that. I think that he was taking things to another level because he thought that he was slipping. It's true uh, that that could be the case, but we as the audience know that that's not true. So yes. uh, that's the part of it that's difficult because Jimmy doesn't know that, right? So to Jimmy, it's not it's not a blinking sign, but it is so in the moment even manipulative to Chuck. Chuck put this thing up to trap Jimmy. He built a trap for Jimmy that successfully trapped Jimmy, and now he's making Jimmy help him dismantle the very trap that trapped Jimmy. I just think that that's serial killer level sick in terms of the the mental aspects of what's going on there because we as the audience know that it was a total fraud it was a total scam it was a total put on and he's essentially saying you dug your own grave now now fill it in now start putting the dirt on top of yourself uh, now take this thing down that that i built to trick you it's just that that's frustrating to me because i know it's a lie And in addition to not knowing what Chuck's plan is, we still don't even know Chuck's motives necessarily of, is he trying to get Jimmy arrested? Is he trying to get Jimmy disbarred? Does he want to break up Jimmy and Kim? I think that that's still unclear. Yeah, it is. And I think that the last two things that you said, well, specifically 
the break up Jimmy and Kim thing and the get Jimmy arrested thing. I think those two are both on the table. Could be all of the above. Could be all of the above. It really could be all of the above, right? Because the disbarment could be part of it all. And we always know that the, the biggest thing that's offended Chuck about Jimmy practicing law, the chimp with the machine gun of the situation, is that Chuck recognizes that Jimmy has no respect for the law and that Jimmy is willing to flaunt the thing that is most important to Chuck in the whole world. We also ultimately don't know, and I'm sure throughout the course of this season we're going to get more reveals, of what more there is in the backstory between Jimmy and Chuck. We saw the deathbed scene with the mom, where the mom is asking for Jimmy even though Chuck is there. We know Chuck did bail Jimmy out of the Chicago sunroof incident and immediately took Jimmy under his wing and said, come on, move to my town and work at my law firm. But we also know Chuck's been the block on Jimmy ever advancing at HHM. We know Chuck has been out to get Jimmy as a lawyer on multiple occasions. And we know Chuck, when he Jimmy sat down for dinner with Chuck's ex-wife, Rebecca, Rebecca. Chuck, Chuck wanted Jimmy out of the picture. And Rebecca loved Jimmy. She had a good time that night. So... We don't really know what happens with Rebecca if Jimmy played a role in that. We don't know what caused the onset of Chuck's condition if Jimmy played a role in that. Either of those things could be heavily influencing the way Chuck is treating Jimmy. Or it could just be everything we know so far plus more incidents from their past that are building this up. But, I mean, you can foresee a scenario, right, where if Jimmy somehow came between Rebecca and Chuck, even if it was to make Rebecca feel like life should be more fun and full of more laughter and the sort of things that Jimmy brings to the table, and Rebecca left Chuck, Chuck is going to want to break up Jimmy, Jimmy and Kim for that reason, because it's, it's one of those like uh, eye-for-an-eye scenarios. So I think once we get more information about that, we might have a greater idea of Chuck's motive, because I think his motive is going to be influenced heavily by their history. If that was the case, though, where Rebecca figured so Prominently, Don't you think we would have gotten more than just one flashback with her? Probably. We did have the moment where Chuck is playing his piano and playing her music and failing to keep time and not not doing well with it. Uh, we don't know ultimately what else there is to that story. It, it can't be that old because Jimmy hasn't been practicing law for that long. I don't know how long he'd been working at the mailroom at HHM, but I think you're, you're talking about only really about a five to six year period that Jimmy's been in Albuquerque total. So if Rebecca was in the picture then and is not now and Chuck has been ailing for almost a year, it, I, we might fill in those blanks with some more information. The problem that you that you raise, Rob, don't you think if that were the case, we would have gotten more? They don't write these seasons with a five-season plan. Mm-hmm. They write them one at a time. And they write them in, in part with, with the things that they see, like the Rebecca scene, knowing that they can go back to that scene later if they have an idea that they really want to break. They can reference back to that moment, and we can point to it and be like, wow, we had the seeds planted then. We should have seen it coming, and now that we've seen it delivered, it all makes sense. That's how they write the show. They don't write it with a multi-season plan in mind. They write it with everything, knowing full well everything they've done before, and using that as inspiration and and having the characters themselves guide them through what they want to do with the, each season individually. So I think we could have seen more, but the way the show's designed and structured and written, I'm not sure that that's how they play it. But I almost feel like that those flashbacks from season two in seeing the scene with Jimmy and Chuck's dad and seeing the scene with Rebecca and seeing the death of their mom. I think that the theme of all of those flashbacks was that here is somebody who seems to think Jimmy is great 
and Chuck is just flabbergasted. Why? What is so great about him? And it just seems like this is a pattern that has repeated itself time and time again. And Chuck is just besides himself. And I think that you are probably getting at the ultimate the ultimate truth between the two of them. It's one of those things where we've talked about this show being almost Shakespearean in terms of the level of the relationship of the brothers and what are their motivations. And there are certain Shakespearean villains like Iago who in Othello who just they kind of one little slight or one little incident or one little thing. They're just full of seething hate, hatred because of their own insecurities. And it doesn't take much of a match to strike a fire. And I do think if you can picture a scenario where Chuck was always brilliant growing up, he's a great legal mind. He's just a brilliant guy. And yet everybody always had more love for his charlatan ask joking brother. This guy slipping Jimmy, who was out there being a little bit edgy and stealing from the till and not really being reliable and getting a sandwich instead of sitting at his mom's deathbed and all this stuff, and yet he's still beloved. And that may be the, the only real reason that Chuck resents Jimmy. Uh, that may be the heart of it. But that could have manifested in other things which made this worse over time. And that's the part I'm, I don't think we're 100% sure about. And I think that they can kind of continue to fill in in the, uh, in the backstory. But I think you're right. At its core, it's just Chuck resenting Jimmy, who is beloved. And Chuck is the older and, and smarter brother and yet can't get the credit that Jimmy gets for doing half the work. Well, let's talk about Jimmy and Kim for a little bit, because, uh, of course, that this relationship is so important to everything that's going on with Jimmy and potentially uh, Chuck might be seeking to destroy it. We end up seeing Kim first where she is uh, meeting with the clients. I guess this is a continuation of what was going on at the end of season two when Jimmy had to run out. And uh, anything that you took away from that first encounter from Jimmy and Kim? Yeah, I don't know that there is anything here, but the most interesting part of it was the argument over whose clients these are. That these were Jimmy's clients that were in the waiting room, as you point out, in the underserved Kim finale, where Jimmy yes. is running around like a chicken with his head cut off, and Kim has to has to pick up the slack for him. And so these are Jimmy's elder law clients, and Kim has picked up the slack for him and is now saying, these are my clients. We don't have a law partnership. This isn't something where I can interview the clients and I can I can meet with them and consult with them, and you can do the work, and we both get paid. And if it's about the money, and Jimmy says it's not, but if it's about the money, we can fix that. Kim is trying at this point still to draw very clear, bright lines in their legal practice. And I think it will be interesting to track going forward if those lines continue to be drawn or if they get muddled. And that's where Kim's going to really be in trouble, right? If we if we talk about a Jimmy McGill who's going to get himself sideways because of this tape for some reason or something else, it could absolutely drag her down the more she's literally and figuratively in bed with him uh, from a personal and professional standpoint. So that's the part I think from the early part, that, I think that's the takeaway from that scene is there's an important level of distinction being drawn here that I'm not sure she's going to continue to draw the whole season. Well, you bring up something interesting about you know, uh, bright lines and uh, them getting muddied. And I have to feel like that there is some symbolism in the rainbow that is going across their shared office and painting over the rainbow. We've talked about for many years 
color theory in Breaking Bad. Colors are very important to Vince Gilligan, whether it's Walter White or Jesse Pinkman and things like we're talking about blue with Kim and, uh, you know, so many other different various things uh, with all of the purple with Marie in the original Breaking Bad. What does Jimmy painting over the rainbow mean? The best part of it, right, is it's only half. I think it's the side that's on Kim's that's painted over so far. Uh, You've got a lot of pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. But it's him doing it. It's him doing it. And she points out that his clients love it, that, oh, your clients really like that rainbow. And if you'll recall, this is a former dentist's office that they're building their practice in. So I would imagine the dentist has that in the office to make it cheery, uh, a a not normally cheery place that people go uh, to brighten up the mood a little bit in the dentist's office, show off those smiles. So. He's he's lessening the mood by taking the the rainbow down for sure. He's reverse dentisting what's happening there, and uh, he's really taking that down. He says, "Wait, you're gonna you, you can't you're not you're gonna love what comes next." I assume it's going to be if you think about Saul Goodman's office in Breaking Bad, the Constitution, and all these this American iconography. It wouldn't shock me to see a giant American flag mural of some sort go up there. Uh, I do think that there is a lot of symbolism, as you're pointing out, of the fact that while she's in her office working, he is outside removing rainbows, literally not chasing them or making them, just erasing them and uh, erasing the happiness from that office. Yeah. And do you think that speaks more to their relationship or speaks to the loss of innocence for Jimmy? I think a lot a lot of both, because I think the two go hand in hand to an extent, because that scene also we're mixing scenes a little bit, but the first scene it begins with with Jimmy saying to Kim, well, it's sort of about that thing you don't want to talk about. And we have to remind ourselves that Kim is smart enough to recognize that when Chuck spelled out the scheme that he says Jimmy perpetrated, that Chuck was right, that Jimmy did that. When they get back to the car, Kim beats him up. When they're in bed at night, Kim says, your brother's really smart. I wouldn't want to be his adversary. I would cross my T's and dot my I's. I'd go take care of him, make sure there wasn't any evidence left. She knows what happened to get Mesa Verde back in her hands. She just doesn't want to talk about it. She also doesn't want to hear about what's going on with Jimmy in his uh, in his sort of sideways practice of the law. She doesn't want to hear about any of it, falsification of evidence and so on. And Jimmy has lost his innocence, but there is this thing between the two of them where she knows he's a bad guy and she knows he's done bad things that don't comport with what she wants to do. And yet she has to sort of be complicit by not talking about them. And I think that that's not a rainbows and puppies scenario. That's a pretty difficult scenario for a relationship. And I think that we're seeing symbolic representations of that and literal ones as well. So Kim has this meeting at Mesa Verde. Everything seems like it's going well. And then the woman at Mesa Verde, what, what is her name? Her name is Paige. Paige. That she talks about this hearing that she had where she got into it with Chuck. And he accused her of muddying the waters. It seemed like that that was a quote that really seemed to upset Paige and also seemed to strike a nerve with Kim. Uh, this muddying the waters, is. does this go back to the rainbow? I don't think so. It's It's fascinating because... 
It's one of those things where Chuck was really undermining her as an attorney by saying you're you're muddying the waters. You shouldn't have a voice here. You're making this more confusing than you can. Uh, that's where she was really upset and offended. She talked about how he can you believe he said this to me? He undermined me. Uh, I do think when you come back to the rainbow, the thing there that sort of triggered Kim and the interesting thing to me is she didn't say Chuck McGill. She just said something to the effect of Paige said, thank you, Kim, for cleaning up the mess that McGill left behind. Mm-hmm. And that is, that's great to me because I felt like Kim heard Jimmy McGill instead of Chuck McGill. And Kim started thinking about, man, that's the guy that I'm literally and figuratively in bed with, that I'm professionally and personally in bed with. And he really did cause all that. Like he caused Chuck and Paige. And Paige is unfairly maligning Chuck because Chuck was right. There was a problem that wasn't his fault. So maybe he responded poorly in the moment, but it wasn't his fault. And Kim knows all this and has to carry that around with her. So I think the muddy, the, the waters are muddy all right, but they're muddy in part because of what Kim knows. And if you want to talk about a loss of innocence and that being represented by a not clear picture and a muddy water, it's very much Kim knowing this thing about Mesa Verde that Paige doesn't. And Paige speaking with Kim on this collegial, collegial level like that says – Hey, we we can we can swap stories about how much we both hate Chuck McGill, and it's not really the case. Like, there's something else going on that Kim knows that Paige doesn't, and I think that's really difficult for Kim. And I think we see that she takes her letter back. Right. Then we see her start editing that letter. I think that that's difficult. What did you think? What did you make of all of the editing of the letter, the colons and semicolons and dashes and periods? What did you make of Kim's fretting with that? Well, that's what I wanted to ask you in terms of your expertise. Could you make out what she was doing on the computer? I mean, we saw her sort of like super close up, like deleting individual characters, but... Is Jimmy's name anywhere in this compliance letter? No, 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 no. I think that that was like just her being like a lot of lawyers, like I am, uh, and like any, I'm sure anyone who has to write professional communications, lawyer or not, can be when you're polishing it up so much uh, that you start to rub off the, the stuff that's on the top and that needs to be there. Uh, it's not shining anymore. And I feel like she's really just focusing on the minute details, whether it would read better with a semicolon, period, or dashes. And I looked at the letter. I didn't see anything that, that it, it doesn't change the purpose or effect of the sentence. It's really just... It's really just nitpicking. And I don't I don't know ultimately if this nitpicking is meant to be like an out damn spot kind of thing where her knowledge of the fact that she gained Mesa Verde under shall we say false pretenses that were not her fault, but it's not right that she has the client at this point, maybe is going to impact the level of service that she can provide them. It's going to drive her crazy as she tries to deal with this account, this knowledge that she has. It's almost like a a telltale heart. It's beating Mm -hmm. and beating in the background. She knows there's something going on there uh, and it's going to impact the level of service she provides. And if you'll recall, Rob, Chuck's pitch to Mesa Verde on why they should go with HHM instead of Kim didn't have anything to do with her competency. It had to do with the level of service that was required for someone like Mesa Verde and the attention that needed to be paid. And I think Kim's feeling the pressure a little bit. If I'm the only lawyer involved in this account, everything here is on me. So everything has to be inch perfect, including just the 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 diction and grammar and word choice and the way that I'm using certain punctuation. And that's how freaked out she is. So I think that 
that a huge part of that is because of Jimmy and the guilt that she's carrying. Yeah. And maybe to add to that, one of the things that Paige said was, oh, HHM, they, it's always somebody else's fault when there's a screw up there. So maybe right. that's also while she's taking everything, uh, so much more responsibility uh, with Great this. Point. So Jimmy also had another interaction in the episode tonight. He dealt with the captain uh, from the Air Force base where they shot his commercial. I was very surprised to see this story picked up here in season three, Antonio. I was too. And do you think this is the end of it? Or is this the last we're going to see of this guy? Um, I don't know. I mean, it doesn't seem like it would be the end of it if we had him here in season three. It seems like that we had a clean break from what was going on. So this feels significant. It does. Because I've tried to read, like, why is this here? The only thing I could read in the context of this episode is there is that great ending where the guy says to him, you guys think you're so damn smart and you, you don't, and you don't have to play it straight as a result. The wheel is going to turn. And I think if you have a mission statement for season three of Better Call Saul, I wonder if that's not it. The wheel's going to turn. Things are going to happen. We're going to make progress to the point where bad things come for the characters that are in play because of the things that they've done so far. And I think we saw the wheel turn for, for old Gene. Uh, Gene ends up on the ground at the Cinnabon at mm-hmm. the sugar, at the, uh, at the, the Nancy he said not to the sugar at sugar town uh he ends up on the ground there so the wheels turning for him we certainly see the the and we'll get to this in a moment i'm sure but we certainly see the wheel turning with what's happening with mike even though we don't get a full resolution to the story uh, business has picked up somebody is now looking out for whatever mike is up to which is a very new thing for mike in the context of this story so the wheel is turning things are coming chickens are coming home to roost and it was a foreboding scene with jimmy in this air force captain yes. as a result of that ending i don't know if we're going to get any more though yeah and if those chickens are going to be from uh, los pollos hermanos they could be they could be yeah pollos uh, for sure yeah that could absolutely be what's happening yeah so other than the interaction between them like referencing the commercial and you know take it down no uh, i'll go to your boss uh basically like calling each other's bluff um yeah, really uh, still confused about why this is here. Yeah, I think uh, TBD. Uh, we have to put a flag in this and see an American flag in this and see if our Air Force captain comes back or if this was just uh, from a Shakespearean level, if this was a prophecy, the prophecy of the Air Force captain. And fudge. And fudge. Yes, and the, the fudge prophecy. And the fudge Fifi prophecy. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of F words in play here, in, including with F Chuck. But uh, I don't know ultimately if we will, if this is the prophecy of the air captain and this is just him, the mission statement of season three, the is going to turn or if there is a it felt like he left it on terms with jimmy where they were basically saying to each other okay look we called each other's bluffs we're not going to do anything about this we're both not happy with the way this has played out but i'm not pulling the commercial you're not complaining about this to anybody else and we're done here and the air force captain left basically just saying like you disgust me mm-hmm. people like you are terrible and i thought in that i thought in that scene jimmy himself he re- really got a little bit uh, excited and with all those clients in the waiting room and the way that ended with the guy walking out uh he's just sort of cursing jimmy's name uh we we it didn't go well for jimmy but i i felt i felt like the foreboding element of that scene was the most important part of it i did love uh before that scene started there's a little breaking bad easter egg in there did you catch it rob which one 
the uh, there's a woman walking out with Jimmy. He's done her will, and she says, "Oh, you'll love all my pictures, and I'll bring the confirmation photos in. I've got all these flowers. I've got lilies of the valley. So anytime you hear lilies of the valley, it's not an accident. That's definitely a little bit of a wink and a nod to Breaking Bad. Uh, good pick up there. All right, uh, we still have a lot to talk about with Mike, but before we get to that, Antonio, let me just take a moment and thank our sponsor for this episode of the podcast, and those are our friends over at True Car. Now, Mike Ermatrout went looking for, if not a new or used car, certainly car parts in this episode. Right. Uh, he was stripping parts off and checking every detail and list twice uh, to make sure things were all in order. But if Mike decides that he does need uh, a different vehicle, uh, new or used, he's going to want to make sure he gets actual pricing inventory and not just from the veterinarian, from a source that he can trust. And a lot of times people don't get that right information. They can figure a car online only to figure out later that's not available. But with TrueCar, you get actual pricing on actual inventory, not just pricing offered by TrueCar, but pricing from the actual dealer and not a dealer like Jesse Pinkman, a true car certified dealer, part of a carefully curated network of dealers committed to transparency and offering you a competitive market price. Finding the car that you want easily, True Car will show you what other people are paying for the same car you're looking for. Now you know what a fair price is, so you can feel confident. Over three million cars, Antonio, have been sold to True Car users by the True Car Certified Dealer Network, with wow. over thirteen thousand True Car Certified Dealers nationwide. True Car users are more likely to enjoy a faster buying process when they connect with a True Car Certified Dealer and are saving an average of over three thousand dollars off MSRP. So. When when you're ready to buy, visit True Car to enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features not available in all states like New Mexico, where all this takes place. All right. Let's talk about what's going on here with Mike, uh, who had a lot of screen time. Didn't say a lot. <laughs> well, that's classic Mike, right? Like he's a man of few words. Um, I don't think you're going to get Mike out here delivering some sort of oration or monologue, generally speaking. Uh, he did the great stuff in 5.0 in season one when he talked about his son. But yeah, this is classic Mike here. Mike is a solitary man. He works on. He works alone. He works in quiet. He often works in darkness. He is Batman. We've talked about this. Yeah. Well, tonight he was uh, taking a lot of things apart. We saw a lot of Mike disassembling things. Thanks. Which is uh, on a on a show that has its DNA in the meth world, a very meth head like behavior, uh, tinkering with these things and taking them apart. Uh, Mike the meth head in full display here. But yeah, he uh, he, I think a lot of people probably had trouble. I know I did uh, at least while it was going on, totally figuring out what was happening with Mike. I think by the end of the episode, we could see what his caper was and how it worked. But as it was going on, it wasn't a hundred percent clear uh, in the Breaking Bad world, putting a tracking device or a GPS device in a car is something we see a lot. We see H Hank Schrader do it. Uh, we know that it's happened with a Gus Fring before. We know that looking under a car is never a bad thing in the Breaking Bad world. Mike is smart enough. Uh, he's, he's not like a meta-awareness. He's a cop. He's an ex-cop. He knows if somebody put this note on my car, they, they had to have known how I would get out here. They had to have known how I would be here. And so they're probably tracking me or following me. He's looking Looking for a tail, I would think uh, a lot of the time he knows if someone's following him. So I think he assumes that it's a tracking device and he's immediately looking for it uh, when he gets to the junkyard there. Yeah. How did you feel about Mike completely taking the car apart? 
<laughs> I loved it. I loved it. I, I thought, are we going to see him just taking this piece by piece? And then there were a couple moments in this episode where montages were time passed with, uh, with the sun setting, with lighting changes or seeing the constellations move around. And we saw it, I thought, beautifully in this scene where over time you just see Mike ripping the car limb from limb and not finding anything as he's going through it. Well, ultimately, he's frustrated. He can't find anything. He goes back into the like junkyard office reception area. He's calling a taxi and he sees gas caps, gas caps. Uh, and he realizes that I should look in the gas cap. Why did it have to be gas cap? <laughs> yeah, he knows that there's something going on. Uh, he asks, like, do you sell those for GM? And then he goes out and he looks and he pops it open and it's a somewhat complicated process. You have to take a screwdriver and pry it apart and look inside the cap and do all that stuff. So he does that. We don't immediately see that he finds something. But when he gets home and checks his personal vehicle, then we do see that he finds a tracking device. He gets the serial number off of that tracking device, uh, the model number, I should say. Then he contacts his uh, underworld contact in in Albuquerque in New Mexico in that area. Uh, and it's the vet. It's the vet we've seen my contact through the first two seasons the vet shows back up it's the middle of the night and mike has a very specific request for him to acquire the same model of tracking device at that point rob what did you think mike's plan was yeah i don't know uh, that i really yeah. am still a little confused about what he ultimately pulled off with the equipment that he got well, I mean, we can talk through it. I think I have a pretty good grasp on what happens. He wants the same tracking device, and we don't know 100% why, but he gets the same tracking device. By the way, he gets the same tracking device. I don't know how much these things cost, but does Mike not know about eBay, Rob? Does he? Is there no Amazon Prime at this time? But does he not want to just go online, look the thing up, and buy it for 100 bucks instead of the, the grand that he gives uh, he gives the veterinarian to track one well, down for him? maybe that the veterinarian could get it quicker and maybe... Maybe there's no paper trail with the veterinarian. Yeah, you don't want to leave a paper trail if you're talking about a tracking device. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I don't know exactly why that would be. Mike doesn't seem like an eBay kind of guy. He, you're right. He probably he's like a Ron Swanson. Like he's had a transistor radio in his house, and that seems to be it. Uh, but yeah, he he works at night. He does crosswords in pen, and he listens to his transistor radio. He doesn't seem to be like an eBay guy. You're right. Uh, but yeah, he buys this tracking device from the vet. He takes it home. He reads the manual. He takes it apart. He he's learning. He learns basically that the thing that it comes with, the tracker, if you will. If you take the battery out of the device, it will go from full battery to showing no battery. So it won't be convincing that it ran down. It will just look like someone took the battery out. He doesn't want it to look like someone took the battery out. He wants it to seem like the battery drained. And so what he does is he uses that that battery ultimately to power his transistor radio and drain the battery out and then over time, whoever's watching that tracking device won't see the battery just be removed. They'll think it died and needs to be swapped out. And by doing that, they'll then show up at his house and swap it out, 
What they don't know is they're swapping it out for the tracking device that he purchased himself. And so when they take that old cap away, they're not taking their device with what they believe to be a dead battery. They're taking his device with what he knows is a working battery. And he can then find out where they drive and ultimately, I think, who they're reporting to. Okay. And so now Mike has gone from being the hunted to the hunter. We need Mike Ermitrout on hunted season two we, we do how we many bars in, of uh, rifi does he have <laughs> i'm not sure uh mike is is he is he a wolf like i think mike's a little <laughs> bit of a wolf he's a fixer uh so i think that the, i think maybe things benefit him here uh he, he could play on both sides you're right mike is a great uh, a great person for hunted because he could be in he could be running or he could be somebody chasing and either way you'd i think you'd believe mike had a chance to uh, pull out the dub so yeah this is his plan and i think it seems to have worked pretty well here uh, it, there, there are a lot, there's a lot that could have gone wrong with this plan. I mean, when they show up, instead of just pulling the gas cap out and putting a new gas cap in, they could have taken the device out and swapped the battery. But as we saw, that's a little more complicated of a process. You have to pry it open. You have to pry the thing open, pop the battery up. They, they were in and out of his, uh, his front, the front of his house in about 10 seconds, which is, of course, what they want. They don't want to be noticed. So I think Mike was right in assuming that they would just swap the gas cap out. Uh, they're for sale everywhere. Uh, and they swapped it out, and now they're carrying his tracking device. It's brilliant. And if you want my opinion, I think this is the sort of thing that can get on Gus Fring's radar in a metaphoric sense. If Mike just shows up and says, I know you're involved somehow, then Gus could be impressed with that. Like, wow, how did you do this? I didn't think that uh, I had those kind of holes in my enterprise, and Mike doesn't have to reveal how, but this could be a big win for Mike. This could get him noticed in a positive way, uh, and it could lead to this later connection between Gus and Mike. So we know that by the time that Breaking Bad starts, that Gus Fring and Mike are on the same page, and Mike works for Gus. Do we think there's going to be conflict between Gus and Mike to start and then Mike is going to win him over? Or do you think it's the kind of thing where Gus just likes the cut of Mike's jib? Oh, that you managed to find me. You should work for me. And we're going to get the beginning of that working relationship between Gus and Mike. I'm not sure. I, I would say this. I, and I don't know that we talked about this a ton on last season because we were a little bit away from the Breaking Bad universe, but it's fresh in my mind because of my rewatch. And I think it, 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 it is important to reevaluate this character that we're going to see appear very shortly here. If, uh, if any of the, uh, the promo material for this season is to be believed, they're not hiding the fact that Gus Fring is coming into this show. And, Gus Fring is a guy who's very methodical. When he's first, when you're first on his radar to do business with him, you don't even know who he is. You show up somewhere and he's watching you and you don't realize that he is. And I think the, the part to keep in mind about all this is Mike was on his own in trying to take down Hector Salamanca. This is a guy who, who threatened Mike, threatened Mike's family. The, the Salamanca cousin showed up all because of the incidents with Tuco, all because of Mike's half measures last season. We saw Mike get threatened. At some point, Hector Salamanca doesn't care about Mike anymore, but Mike has this vendetta for Hector Salamanca that almost boils over to the point that Mike is ready to shoot him in the head at the end of season three and the note is the only thing that stops him we had speculated a lot i think on why someone would leave a note what this would be but if it was gus we know gus hates 
hates Hector Salamanca and torments him. And I think we know that Gus ultimately wants to be the one one day to kill to kill Hector. He doesn't want someone to take that from him. And so I think he probably in watching Hector, because he's somebody that's on Gus's radar, Mike popped. They saw Mike watching Hector's business. They saw Mike and started following him and realized this uninterested, this third part, inter- intervening third party, as they say in the law, who has nothing to do with the business between Hector and Gus, now all of a sudden is going to take Hector off the map, which could cause other problems for Gus, by the way. So Gus wants to stop him on that level, but I think he's probably impressed. Like, why? We have a mutual enemy here. So who are you? And I think he probably wants to know more about Mike. Figure out if he's working for anyone. Figure out all that stuff because Gus is a very methodical man. And I think that once Mike, if Mike shows up and gets the drop on Gus with this tracking device, that's the sort of thing that can impress a man like Gus, especially if Mike has no ulterior motives and is somebody that Gus could use. We, we just don't know so much, Rob, about Gus Fring's business. We don't know who's cooking meth for him. We don't know where any of that's happening because we know how it happens in Breaking Bad. We don't know anything about how it happens at this point uh, or to what degree he's even in that business at this point. So it's all going to be very fascinating to see. And I don't think that Gus is just per se going to be hostile to Mike from the jump. I think Gus is more interested in Mike because that's how Gus operates. So why would Gus put a note on Mike's car that says don't if Mike was going after the people that Gus is warring with? Why tell him don't? Again, I think the two prevailing reasons are, one, Gus wants to do that himself. He doesn't want to give someone else the opportunity to kill this person who's been on his to-kill list ever since the events of the the poolside the first poolside incident in breaking bad mm-hmm. when gus's prior business partner got gunned down and hector was just loving every second of it and mocking them openly and gus had to watch it all play out and there were i think genuine feelings of love between gus and his partner or at least on gus's end so this is an incident that has driven gus and we know it motivates him later in breaking bad he tortures hector his hate for hector is his biggest weakness that is exploited in breaking bad so that's the first reason don't kill the guy that I've been waiting my whole life to kill. Let, let me just ask it. a quick question. With that flashback pool scene from Breaking Bad where, spo- right. spoiler alert, uh, when Gus uh, you know, has the, uh, the poisoned, uh, what is it, tequila? Oh, uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Poison tequila. Do you know the date on that in terms of like, is that within the time frame of the Better Call Saul or does that predate even what's happening in Better Call Saul? So the first scene where there isn't any poison tequila, where Gus's partner gets shot, uh, Gus is looks he looks really young. Uh, he he doesn't he doesn't look that old, and Gus has just started in the business at that point. I don't know that there is poyo. There are I, I, the impression from that scene is that there aren't Poyos Hermanos everywhere, that there aren't chicken chains everywhere, especially in America, that this maybe there's a couple places in Mexico where that scene takes place, but that it's not a huge sprawling business. And Gus looks relatively young and his uh, protege, uh, lover, whatever you want to call the guy gets killed in that scene. We don't know why Gus is protected, but he is, and he is not killed in that scene. And I'd say that that is, very much prior to the timeline of Better Call Saul. I'd say by 10 to 15 years at least. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
if you just look at the age of everybody involved, I mean, I, I think that it's 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 a significant number of years left. Even Hector Salamanca himself looks a little younger than he looks in the Better Call Saul timeline. I just wanted to make sure. It's been a while since I watched that. I just wanted to make sure if we were going to be seeing the events leading up to that or if that was already ha- had happened and there is already that bad blood. Yeah, and I'll be curious, Rob, if we see flashbacks to non-Better Call Saul stuff with Gus. I mean, we saw it with Mike in 5-0. We saw him go back to Philly. We saw what happened there with the police that were responsible for his son's death. So we did see a little bit of a minor flashback there that was uh, just predated Mike's arrival in Albuquerque and his early immediate arrival in Albuquerque. But that is not very long before the start of Better Call Saul, it doesn't seem like. And this would be, I think, a little longer and it would be a more interesting flashback uh, era. So we could fill in the blanks of that and and get the full backstory of Gus Fring. Uh, When you do a prequel like this, I think that's a story they're probably very interested in telling. And there's a lot to be told there. I'm sure we'll get into it more when Gus shows up, but I think there are a lot of blanks to be filled in there. And I think we are going to be seeing some of that stuff. We have to. Well, especially if Ernesto is his kid, we could be getting some of the uh, Gus Fring home life. We could. We could see fish stew and Ernesto saying, I don't like fish stew. You can't cook this. And Gus just kind of shrugging his shoulders and saying, I need to invite friends over to cook this for. Uh, but yeah, we, we do. We, we, we have the possibility of seeing a lot of Gus Fring that we didn't see in Breaking Bad. I, I'm look, really looking forward to that. Now, you and I talked about this a lot last season where, OK, we like everything going on with Mike. We like the stuff going on with Chuck and Jimmy. But it feels like at times we're watching two different shows that co-inhabit one hour of television. Did you feel that way so far through one episode of season three? I sure did. Didn't you? I mean, there's just no connective tissue between what's happening. And even just tonally, it's just so jarring. I think that's a problem they're going to correct in short order here in season two. Uh, I think that Mike is almost already in hot enough water that he probably needs Jimmy. Uh, And the truth of the matter is Mike doesn't know anyone else in Albuquerque who is even slippery, except for maybe the vet. Uh, He had a job with uh, the why is Mike going to need a lawyer? What legal trouble is Mike in? It's not that he always needs a lawyer. Sometimes he needs a criminal. (laughs) And he needed a lawyer ostensibly last season in one of the two most moments that their show crossed over, that their stories crossed over. The, the, the lawyer job that he needed Jimmy to do wasn't to get him out of trouble with the... This was two seasons ago. It wasn't to get him out of trouble with the police that were investigating. It was to spill coffee on them and steal the notebook. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't a lawyer job. That was a criminal job. That was a bump and dump. That was a, that was a, a pickpocket job uh, that he helped set up. So... And similarly, he needed a lawyer last season with Price, with Playa, the guy whose baseball cards got stolen, not because this guy needed a lawyer for some good reason, but because this guy being involved and on the police's radar at all was ultimately bad for Mike. And he needed he needed Jimmy to completely lie, fabricate evidence and make up a story to take care of and protect Mike. Uh, And so. I, Mike, when he's called Jimmy in the past, has called Jimmy to be a criminal, not a criminal lawyer. Uh, and so I think he might need Jimmy again for the slipping Jimmy part of it, not for James McGill, attorney at law. And I think that that's what we could see. And that's that's the part that I love about the intersection of their stories is if you look back to last season, uh, Jimmy was working at Davis and Maine. He had his, this perfect law firm job. He was working on this giant case that he had brought in. He had no reason to go off on a folly and help Mike 
like with Price and the squat cobbler storyline. He did it anyway, and I think he did it because he likes the action. He likes that criminal part of criminal law. He likes that uh, with the stuff, that the capers that he's run with Mike and the things that he's done. So I think if you talk about Mike getting involved with criminals and more in the criminal world, I think Mike might need Jimmy to be a criminal, not necessarily a lawyer. Okay. And I guess we have to see if the Ernesto of it all is the thing that finally might unite Jimmy and Mike. You're loving this, Ernesto. You're loving this. <laughs> I, I mean, it'd be a very interesting way to get into it. I mean, I sent you the picture. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. It's on Reddit. No, you I looked at the picture. I mean, somewhere. it's uncanny. I mean, it really it's like either really they're, they're messing with us and they want us to think that or like it's just blatantly obvious. Yeah, they could be messing with us. Could be a red herring. Uh, it could be a Reddit herring. It could be trolling. It could be a Reddit herring. That that's great. We need to do more Reddit <laughs> herrings. This is fantastic. That you just had like a fantastic idea that I hope showrunners hear the Reddit herring. But yeah, it could be a Reddit herring. It could ultimately be something that is one of those things where you, it, this can't be it. They're not doing. Are they? Is this? Oh no, that wouldn't be. Oh, maybe it is. Oh my gosh, it is. Like it could be one of those things where it's been right in front of us the whole time. We talked about it a lot, and yeah, they actually did do it. And I think it could work. I I think that something is happening with Ernesto. That much is clear. Chuck is using him, I believe, in a pawn of this War of the Roses or Game of Thrones that he's playing with Jimmy. But I think that there's something more to Ernesto, and I I just think we're going to see it play out over the course of this season. And Mike could be the connective tissue there. I, I do think this show, generally speaking, needs to find ways to put the two together. But I think you hit the nail on the head for the reason why they don't, which is you said these two parts of the show are so different tonally. And I think that's a big deal because I think once you put Jimmy in this tone, uh, the stuff with Kim and Chuck and all of that is much different. We right now are watching the Breaking Bad story of Jimmy McGill when he was a he was a decent guy and he's going to turn into Saul Goodman, who is not a decent guy. And so I think once you break him bad, and you make him a criminal, I think you've done that. That's done. And so the tone of his scenes with Kim and with Chuck are not going to be the same. That's sort of a line that you can't cross or you can't, it's a bell you can't unring, Rob. And I think that because of that, the tones are very different of their two of their two things. And I think the more that you blend them together and the more we see Jimmy become a criminal, the more we're going to see those two blend together. And eventually it will be all the same tone. A lawyer you can trust my ass. Exactly. That's not the hashtag, I hope. Yeah. Well, (laughs) is there anything else to say about the season three premiere of Better Call Saul? No, it was a slow burn, but I think that a lot of stuff was set up here that it, that will pay off. We saw classic Mike Caper. That We saw the end of that caper in terms of it working, someone taking his tracking device by the end of this episode. I think Chuck is running his own game. It's a much longer con. I think we'll have to see. I mean, Chuck, we talked about this last season, Rob. If you take Chuck McGill's brain and the smart, the level of intelligent that he is, I know you love the scene when he was in the conference room with Mesa Verde, with Howard Hamlin, and doing that spin job of saying, oh, Kim is so great. She worked for us. She's fantastic. Uh, but she'll never remember. Or, you know, you have to remember that these sorts of things can happen. That was a master spin job. I think we were just scratching the surface of what we could see from Chuck as, as this evil villain in terms of how brilliant he is. And I think we're seeing the beginnings of that tonight. And 
And I, I, I'm very curious to hear what your thoughts are in a rewatch if you watch it again or, or going into the weeks ahead if we were right about ultimately Chuck playing that game on Ernesto. And it's, it's really that he's running a con. And we're going to see Chuck being Slip and Jimmy, but Chuck being that is like the prime level of that. So it will be fascinating to watch play out. And I'm really looking forward to seeing that. And I just, uh, I mean, it, this is Better Call Saul at its boldest and brashest. Better Call Saul doing very little at the beginning of their season, but I think hopefully setting up a lot, which will pay off by the end of the season. All right. Well, Antonio, you were on fire here tonight, so you were in mid-season form. I've been, it's because I did all this binge watching and uh, all this stuff. I mean, I feel like I've, I haven't taken a break. I feel like I've been watching Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad uh, on a loop. So here we are. Okay. Thank you, Rob. All right. Well, I want to hear, and Antonio wants to hear, all of your thoughts about what we said here tonight, what you're thinking about parts of this episode that we may not have mentioned. Send them in to us, bcs at postshowrecaps.com on email or postshowrecaps.com slash voicemail. We'll also look through the comments on postshowrecaps as well. So be on the lookout for that midweek. And uh, we won't do a feedback show every week, but to give you guys a chance to talk about the premiere, we will go ahead and uh, get that up for you guys as well. Also, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Go to postshowrecaps.com slash bcs iTunes, postshowrecaps.com. Slash BCS iTunes. We'll also have the subscribe links on postshowrecaps.com in the post for this show. All right, Antonio, anything else? Uh, do we have a hashtag? Yes, I got a couple of options for you. Uh, right, we it. have uh, Jimmy Come Lately. <laughs> I like that one. I like that okay. one. Uh, we have a uh, Space Blanket Admission. Yes, that was and good. And a Reddit Herring. That was good. Uh, I think we should go with Reddit okay. Herring. What do you think? Fine, let's I go. I think it's just a, you just had such a brilliant idea with that, Rob. All right, I think it's interesting. Is that going to make anybody on Reddit mad? Well, that's my concern. Uh, I do I do have some level of concern with that, but I guess I don't, I don't want the I don't want anybody angry over this. No, no, I, I like it. Reddit Herring. Okay. I like you're going to go Herring. bold. Like we'll it. go bold. I'm going to go bold. I was I was I thought you were going to say post show gas caps, and I was concerned. <laughs> but yeah, Reddit Herring. This is good. That's fine. Okay, and on top of all that, you should follow. Antonio Mazzaro on Twitter. He is at AC Mazzaro. That's two Z's, one R. You got it. And I am at Rob Sesternino on the Twitter and can't wait to get back into talking some more. Better call Saul with you uh, later on this week. Take care, everybody. Have a good one. Bye.